Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Hey, Icon, good to see you again. Uh, it's been a little while. Uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed the Voices series uh, from Je uh, Jackie O'Perry, John Mark Comer, John Tyson, and Mark Sayers. These are some of my uh, absolute favorite communicators, people that I'm learning from a great deal, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, but we're jumping back into Romans, and we are in Romans 3. Even though it seems like we've been in Romans for a very long time, uh, we've only gotten through two chapters. So I want to do a little bit of recap uh, on Romans 1 and 2, and so we can see how Paul's uh, argument kind of continues to evolve into Romans 3. So if you'll remember, uh, in Romans 1, he began by kind of setting this big vision for the, the church that he uh, hoped that the church in Rome could be. Now, if you remember some of the kind of historical context behind it, um, the church in Rome was probably founded by some Jewish Christians who came from Jerusalem uh, and started the church there in Rome, as most of the early churches were. They were formed by uh, Jews who had been converted to Christ and seen Jesus as the promised Messiah. Now, over time, uh, Gentiles, Roman citizens and Greeks, were uh, added to the church as they got converted. But the early church was a primarily Jewish church. Now, in Rome, in AD 49, the Roman emperor Claudius kicked out all the Jews from Rome. And the, the historical documents say because of the, the uproar or the fighting about some guy named Crestus. C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, which is like a historical typo, right? He meant Christus, uh, but because, you know, he's the emperor and he doesn't have to pay attention to spelling or, you know, what people's actual names are, uh, he calls it Christus, which I just kind of find hilarious, to be honest. So because of that, all the Jews got kicked out of Rome and that just left the churches to be full of these Gentile converts. And those Gentile converts didn't just quit being Christian. They began to lead and shape the church in, uh, the, you know, kind of the best as they knew how. Over time, though, uh, those Jewish Christians were able to come back to Rome. And what they found when they came back is that the church had changed, right? So when the early church was primarily converted Jews, they brought a, a very Jewish kind of flavor and perspective into the church. And, and Jesus as the Messiah became kind of just a continuation of their Jewish faith. And so they brought in a kind of a high value for following the law and circumcision and a lot of the feasts and rituals from, from, the, from Judaism, from the Old Testament. But when the Gentiles were saved, they didn't bring that same kind of value for those Jewish practices. And so in the absence of Jewish leaders, the Gentiles formed the church and it looked like a lot more of a Gentile church. So when those Jews came back, they felt displaced, right? They didn't recognize the church that they had left. Um, they didn't understand why these Gentiles weren't following all of these laws. And the two things that became kind of the tip of the spear in terms of the arguments were one, the law and all of that's wrapped up into that, like what it means to follow the law and the practices and rituals in that. And then specifically circumcision, right? So Jews are circumcised as babies on the eighth day. These Gentile converts were being converted as adults and then being asked to be circumcised, which is honestly a big ask. Uh, and so there was a conflict, as you might imagine. The Gentiles are all of a sudden told they got to get circumcised and they're raising their hand going, can we, can we get a second opinion on this? And so that causes some, some friction, right? 
So Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and that's the context, right? Uh, Romans is often thought of as like Paul's big theological treatise, and it is, like it, it, it's heavy and there's a lot of theology, but it's not like he sat down in a vacuum and said, okay, I gotta finally write down all the things I think, right? It's not what's happening. He's writing to a very specific situation, a context as he does in every other book. Um, and this is the context, the, the first or, or at least the most prominent multi-ethnic church in the early church period. And he's writing to them to try to solve some of these ethnic and racial divides and, and the problems that were coming as a result of it. So in, in chapter one, the first half or 17 verses, he casts this vision for what they can be. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek and all of this, this vision for uh, what the church ought to be. And then in 18, through the rest of the chapter, um, he begins to paint this picture of kind of a, a stereotype of Gentile sin. And it's largely a Jewish stereotype of Gentile sin. And if you remember, like he kind of builds this argument about sin is at, at its heart idolatry. And here's how Gentile idolatry is played out. And he talks about sexuality. And he talks about all kinds of different things. Um, but by the end, he pivots the, the conversation really quickly, pivots kind of the, the attention from the Gentiles to the Jews. And then in chapter two, verse one, he goes, and you who judge have been doing the same thing and not only doing the same thing, but you've been approving of those and covering for those who are doing the same things that you get all mad about the Gentiles about, right? So then he spends all of chapter two talking about God's righteous wrath against the Jews for their unfaithfulness. And he goes after specifically these two issues of the law and circumcision and the ways in which the Jews, who've kind of clung to these two things as their this, this rightful privilege that they have, and he's going, listen, you haven't followed the law, you've been unfaithful to God, you, you do circumcision, but you're totally missing the point on it and you're misusing it even as it is. And so, you know, he's kind of breaking it down, breaking down this, this sense of uh, rights or this sense of privilege that the Jewish Christians would have had as they re-enter into the church. And it's kind of causing all this friction. So Paul's approach to kind of try to get these two on the same page is to level the playing field, right? And so he's breaking down, kind of dismantling some of the ways in which the Jews felt superior to the Gentiles. And then he's going to pivot here to, to Genesis chapter three, sorry, Romans chapter three. And um, there's going to be this little rhetorical device that he uses, which is a Q&A, right? And uh, Paul does this a lot where he um, kind of assumes a question and then he answers that question. And then he assumes another question and then he answers that question. So um, Paul has at this point been doing ministry amongst the Gentiles for like 20 years. And so he knows the questions. He knows the questions that the Jews have been asking. He knows the questions that they are likely to be thinking as Phoebe is reading the first two chapters of this letter. And so he's going to try to get ahead of it and answer it. Now, I don't doubt, I mean, these are hypothetical questions, but I don't doubt at all that Paul has heard these questions in one form or another over the course of the last 20 years. And I think that's actually kind of helpful to picture um, people asking him these questions and him having to have ready answers in defense of his ministry and what he's calling both Jew and Gentile Christian to do. So we're going to follow that kind of Q&A and we're going to kind of watch how Paul's argument uh, plays out. And then it's all driving towards uh, a big climactic moment uh, at the end. So Romans chapter three, verse one says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? 
right? So Paul has just been breaking down all of these things that they felt like, man, we're really hanging our hat on these issues, the circumcision and covenant and law and all of this. And, and Paul's just kind of taking all that away from them and going, you've been messing this stuff up from the beginning. And so then in somewhat of desperation, they go, okay, well then why are we Jews, right? Like what advantage is there to being a Jew and what is the value of circumcision? Because I'll be honest, if there's very little value, uh, you know, we can, we can move on, okay? So he, they ask a, a really good and important question. And, and if you've been following Paul's logic, you would probably expect him to go, there's no advantage. This is my whole point. There's no advantage. But that's not what he says. Verse two, much in every way, he says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, I love this, right? They feel like Paul's taken away all their stuff. And they go, well, what is the point of being a Jew? What advantage do we actually have? And Paul goes, you have a huge advantage. He goes, you have been entrusted with the oracles of God. And it's super interesting to me that Paul uses this word. The one that's translated oracles here is a version of the word logos. In the Greek, which if you were here for our John series back in December, which feels like, you know, 10 years ago, uh, you'll remember that the Logos is the embodiment of wisdom that we see ultimately incarnate in Christ, right? So every other time that Paul talks about the law, he uses the Greek word nomos, which is just law. Here, he, he kind of draws it out bigger and says, you have had the logos, not just the nomos, the logos of God, which is you, you've had the very presence of God with you from the beginning. God came to Abraham, chose Abraham, promised to give Abraham a family and promised to bless Abraham so that he could be a blessing to all the nations. That uh, it was God who gave you the Ten Commandments. It was God who walked with you in the desert. It was God who walked with you through uh, the, the, the Jordan Sea and out of slavery and out of Egypt and all of the things. Like they have this massive story of the Jews having unique, special privileged relationship with God. They've been given a covenant. They've been given so much that most of these other nations have not been given as directly as the Jews have been given it. They have had access. So the question isn't, do they have any advantages? It's what they have, what have they done with those advantages? And in many cases, Paul's going, you've taken advantage of your advantages. You've misunderstood what it is. You've had access to God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and somehow you've turned that into, I'm special, rather than, can you believe we have this access to God? So there is advantage, but it's just not the kind of advantage that they think of. Verse three says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So. One of the things Paul's argued is that the people of God, the Israelites, have been unfaithful. There have been cycle after cycle of cycle after cycle of unfaithfulness among the Jews, and that, that God has been faithful through all of it, but that they have been really unfaithful. So when they point the finger at the Gentiles and go, well, look at all the sin of the Gentiles, Paul goes, is this what we want to do? Is this our game? We're going to point out each other's sins? Because we got like this whole book of stuff that we could talk about, right? Like, so, so their question is, all right, well, you're telling us we're so unfaithful. What does that mean? Does, if we're unfaithful, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Does that mean that God is actually not with us? And, and honestly, I love this question. 
I love this question because I do think this question lies at, many of, at, at the heart of many of us. I think it is a core question that comes out of a fear that when we don't perform, God doesn't love us. When we are unfaithful, that God is not going to be faithful to us. And so I, I love kind of the honesty. I love that Paul brings up this question because there, there's a lot about that fear that will keep us from being vulnerable, that will keep us from being honest, that will keep us from actually approaching the heart of God and not just kind of keeping our distance, trying to be good for God. So what's Paul's answer? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Even if every person on the earth is a liar, and you are, God is true. God will never lie. God makes promises and he doesn't break them. You can be unfaithful on top of unfaithful on top of unfaithful, and you are, and God will be faithful. And he always will be. It says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. I love that Paul is going after this question. And I want to pause here for just a moment because I think that this lies in many of us. I think that we fear that when we are unfaithful to God, if we can even bring ourselves to admit that, right? Let's, let's start there. Because there's a bunch of you who are out there, you're not Christian, and you're, you're unwilling thus far to admit your own unfaithfulness. You, you like to think of yourself as a generally good person who kind of, you know, is doing all right in the world. And you would never kind of characterize yourself as a sinful person, as a bad person, as someone who is in need of the faithfulness of God. So first, there, there's an if part of this. If you are willing to admit your unfaithfulness. And, but, but here's what I think. I think we would all be far more willing to look deeply at our own sin, at our own brokenness, at our own faithlessness, if we were convinced that what lie on the other side of confession, that we, if we were to confess our sin, confess our unfaithfulness, that what lie on the other side of our confession was a faithful God. I think we would all be way more likely to confess our unfaithfulness if we knew that that was not going to be met with wrath, but with faithful grace. And that's why this is so important. Because Paul says, e even though you might be afraid that your unfaithfulness would trigger the wrath of God, I'm telling you, it just is going to trigger the faithfulness of God. All you're going to see in that moment is a, a God who is with you and never ceases to be with you. This is why um, the Bible uses the illustration of marriage over and over and over. And Paul uses it over and over and over. Because marriage is the best illustration of the way in which our relationship with God works. Right? You, you make vows at the beginning of a relationship. In fact, uh, under quarantine, I've done two weddings. It's very illegal. It's very hush-hush. Don't tell anyone, but I'm kind of a rebel. And, uh, and, and, and they've been super fun. But I always stand uh, as we're doing the vows. And I got the guy and the gal. They're standing there looking at each other and making vows. And they're saying this quote from the last uh, wedding I did. I asked the, the groom, will you love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health? forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. And both of the guys had the audacity to say, I do. There's no way. They're not going to live up to that. I know these dudes. Like, they're definitely not. They already have, right? Like, it's, this is no chance. They're making a, a vow. They're making a commitment 
to their bride and the bride to the groom, making vows. And it's at that moment of vow, it's at that moment of commitment that they become married, that they enter into covenant, right? Here's what it isn't. It isn't that they kind of set hopes at the beginning and then 50 years down the road they go well did you do it perfectly if yes then we're married if no sorry not married that's not how it works we make vows with one another that we have almost no chance like unless you have very very simple vows like i vow uh, i i i justin take you emily to kind of try Right, like I could probably live up to that one uh, most days, right? But we, we make these huge vows, these commitments of faithfulness, commitments of sickness and health and all this till death do us part and I'll love you and care for you and groom you and feed you and bathe you and all of these things. And then we go, no, it just, it's never going to happen. But that doesn't mean we stop being married when we fail the covenant. It doesn't. Now we can, we can choose to break the covenant but that's not what the intention is. That's not how it's supposed to work. And that's why the marriage illustration is such a perfect reflection of who God is. And it is a picture like what, how God is, is a picture of how we ought to be in marriage. That the Israelites and we are unfaithful on top of unfaithful on top of unfaithful. Even though we've made these vows, like I, when we commit our lives to Christ, we're saying, you are my Savior and you are my Lord. And then we turn to other things to save us and we turn to other things to tell us what to do and how to be over and over and over and over and over. But that doesn't stop us. That doesn't end our relationship with God. That doesn't stop us from being Christian because God is faithful. God holds up his end of the covenant. God never loses a Christian. So as unfaithful as we might be to him over the years, he is forever faithful to us, which ideally puts us in a position where we are able to very quickly go, I did this. I looked to someone else to save me or I looked to something else to be my Lord. God, forgive me because I, I know you are eternally faithful to me and you will meet my sin with grace and forgiveness and faithfulness. And, and see, that's, that's another key to this thing too. Like God's faithful doesn't mean God's just around and just never going to go away, right? God's faithful to bring conviction. God's faithful to bring grace. And grace always changes us. Grace never leaves us as we are. Grace always changes us. So he's faithful to draw us to him. He's faithful to, to point us towards what we need. He's faithful to change us and mold us and shape us into the people that we were created to be. So we make a vow at the beginning and that's what makes us his because he is faithful to keep his covenant. And then we spend the rest of our life, the same way we do in marriage, spend the rest of our life trying to live up to the vows that we made, however imperfectly we do it. And man, that is a promise that lies at the heart of the gospel. And Paul goes, you, you have to be able to see this. That is the faithfulness of God, that no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how you act, it doesn't change fundamentally your relationship with God. That's the good news of the gospel. Paul continues with the rest of these questions in verse 5. It says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And then in parentheses, I speak in a human way. I just love when Paul lowers himself to speak to humans, us, us dummies. By no means, he says, verse 6, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged us with saying, I love this argument because it is so childish, right? And I love picturing that at least once in Paul's ministry, some old Jewish guy, because it's definitely a guy who's making this argument, would come up to him and go, okay, Paul, if your argument is that our unfaithfulness shows God's faithfulness or, and our unrighteousness, our sin, actually shows how righteous God is, both in the fact that we see the gap between who God is and who we are. Like when we sin, that makes it obvious that we're not God. So it kind of glorifies the goodness of God, but also in the sense that God is faithful. And so when we sin, God's faithfulness continues. And that's like, wow, God's pretty amazing. Every time I sin, God's response is love and grace and forgiveness and faithfulness. Like that's pretty good. So Paul, if your argument is our sin makes God look better, then why would God get mad when I sin? And, and why shouldn't I just keep sinning so that God looks better and better and better, right? Like this is just, just, just childish, childish kind of argumentation here that I just kind of love to picture the guy who made this argument with a straight face to Paul and Paul trying to keep a straight face, trying to unball his fists so he didn't punch anybody and just like go, okay, okay, I hear what you're saying. Um, but then he says, their condemnation is just. Like, I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna answer that. That's just ridiculous. Their condemnation is just. But here's what I do think is important about this. When we're confronted, when we're confronted with ideas that we don't like or, or change our life in ways that we're not comfortable with, like, humans know, uh, no, no limit to the degree that they will make excuses, that they will change the subject, they will kind of hem and haw and, and obscure and argue dumb stuff that they know is dumb. It just there, There's a sense in which this just reveals our desperate desire to be right, to confirm our priors, to avoid condemnation, to be good, to be accepted, that, that to, to not have to change in any way, that we will resort to ridiculous arguments and logical fallacies in order to just try to change the subject so maybe, possibly, I can kind of rationalize not having to change at all. This is what happens. Paul goes, this is a dumb argument. You're arguing that you should sin more because then God gives more grace. That's just dumb. Like, your condemnation is just, and that's my answer to you, okay? Now, the last question. Verse 9 says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And if you're reading the ESV and maybe some other translation too, there should be a little footnote that goes to the bottom. It says, another translation is, are we Jews uh, at any disadvantage? And I think that's actually a, a more helpful translation because then it, 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 it kind of puts a frame around verses 1 and verse 9. So verse 1, if you remember, says, then what advantage has the Jew? Paul answers these questions. And then the, the summation is, well, then are Jews at a disadvantage? Right? Like it sounds like you're, you're kind of taking away everything that we thought was good and, and everything that we kind of leaned on for our identity and our hope. You're taking away all of that, Paul. So now, like, now are the Gentiles at an advantage? Are we at a disadvantage? Paul goes, no, not at all. You're missing the point. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, 
are under sin. Right? Paul goes, the gospel is the great equalizer. That's his point. When a group of people assume that something is true, or alternatively, that some truth has been ignored or overlooked, you have to go to greater lengths to demonstrate it, right? Paul's argument isn't that Jews are worse. It's just that they thought they were better. And so in order to just show how they're the same, Paul's got to kind of go hard on the Jews and go, listen, you, you're not as good as you think. You break the law. You don't get circumcision. You've broken covenant. You're unfaithful. And so they're going, well, then... Are we at some disadvantage because we have this long history with God of unfaithfulness and the Gentiles are new to this game? Paul goes, no, not at all. The point is you thought you were here. Reality is here. And so now that I'm beating on you, you feel like it's here. So a a line that I've seen kind of make the rounds on the internet and, and no one seems to know who said it, but it's really good. It says this, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. When you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Right? When, you, when you're used to having some advantages and those advantages get taken away, it seems like, gosh, why am I the only one losing right now? Why is everything being taken away from me and not anybody else? When it, in reality, all it was is you got used to it and I get used to having advantages. I mean, I've dealt with this uh, in, in my own life in, in job roles, right? You get used to having a job that puts you kind of like this in a position of power. And then you get a new job and you feel like, oh gosh, I'm, who am I? I'm nobody now. Like I don't have any of the advantages and power and privileges that I had in my previous job because something changed and it feels like, gosh, I have lost so much. But reality is I just kind of got leveled out, but it feels worse. It feels different, right? Now I, I would be, I'd be missing an opportunity to not draw some connections to what's going on in our world today. And I've gotten a little bit of heat for the illustrations that I've used kind of around our current cultural moment, uh, primarily around race, but in other ways as well, which I, I don't totally understand the heat if I'm, if I'm really honest with you, right? Like, because it, it, it seems like it presupposes that there are elements of our life to which the gospel does not speak. And I don't understand that. Like, that's, that's not the gospel we believe. That God made all things, that all things are broken, that all things are being redeemed, and that all things will be restored because of the gospel. And so there's no part of our lives to which the gospel does not speak, to which the gospel does not heal. And so for us to ignore huge portions of life because they are are politically charged or culturally charged or whatever is, is nonsense, honestly. And I feel like I would be doing you a disservice as your pastor to not connect the dots besides the fact that what's going on in the church in Rome is very similar to what's going on in our world today. They are dealing with the realities of multi-ethnic interactions and and people with privilege and lack of privilege and change and how that stuff changes over time and people uh, leaving and immigrating back and experiencing kind of disassociation and and having to wrestle with all that in the context of church leadership. It's like, that's massively contextually appropriate for what's going on right now, okay? So we're, we're we're gonna tie these things together when we see them in the scriptures, right? The Jews have always thought of themselves as God's privileged people. And and in some ways, that's absolutely true. But they took advantage of their advantages. They were unfaithful to God and still thought it was something about themselves that put them in their unique position. Even though it was always grace that gave them their opportunities. 
So they, they respond by going, well, are we now at a disadvantage because of all this? Paul goes, no, you, you don't, you're missing it. My point is that you're all equal, that you don't have any advantages over the Gentiles. That before Christ, and the only metric that matters, that you are all made in the image of God, that you are all fundamentally flawed, and you are all need of, in need of a Savior equally. That, that puts you on a level playing field, right? He goes, by the way, the law that you've been given, the oracles of God, the law that makes you feel so special, the law's been telling you this since the beginning. And I don't know if you've missed it. I don't know if you've just kind of intentionally ignored it. I don't know if it was like a part of the law that you didn't like and so you just kind of weren't like and just paid attention to the good stuff. But this has been in the law this whole time. So verses 10 through 18 are one of the most famous sections in the whole Bible, certainly one of the most famous sections in Romans. And it acts like a mirror. Paul is kind of putting up a mirror to the Jews and that mirror is the law and going, hey, you know, if you don't agree with this and, and you want to cling to the law, let me, just, let me just read to you, maybe remind you a little bit about what the law says about you. Okay, so here's what he says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul goes, okay, if you want to cling to the law and what the law says about you and make you feel special, here's what the law says. You're totally depraved, broken by sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is what Christian theologians call uh, total depravity, right? That, that uh, we, we are made in the image of God. And that that gives us our inherent kind of dignity and value and worth. And yet we are broken by sin down to our very core and therefore in need of a savior. Like that, that's how Christians kind of do anthropology. It's a Christian anthropology, it's a Christian understanding of what a human is. Made in the image of God, have never spent a day bearing the image of God perfectly and therefore are in need of sin. This is how we think of ourselves. And, and just as a little side note, right, on, on this, I know that this is, uh, this is a hard word for, for some of us, and, and it's, a, it's a challenging word in a world that tells us we're basically good and that all we need is a little tweak to the politics or a little tweak to the economics or a little tweak to education or whatever it is, and we'll be fine, but we're all good and you just live your best life and you go be you, do you, you know, whatever it is. The, Christianity goes, no, it's the opposite of that. Like you're fundamentally flawed. The problem is you. The problem's not something outside of you. The problem is you. I was recently listening to a podcast that I love called um, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And I can't recommend it because they talk about things and say words that I can't recommend you listen to, but it's fantastic and I love it. You should definitely listen to it. But he was doing an interview with a comedian named Nick Kroll. And they were talking about original sin or total depravity and laughing about how these foolish Christians, and they both grew up Catholic. Like, can you believe we used to think that uh, little babies were sin sinners and destined for hell? And I'm thinking two things. One, have you met a baby? Like, 
definitely sinners and deserving of hell. There's no question. Like they're terrible. Second, I wanted to reach through the podcast and go, then you help me understand why things are the way they are. Because all we see around us is pain and violence and brokenness and hurt. How do you explain that? Right? Uh, The American theologian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr, which is a great name, said this uh, about this issue. He says, one school or one school of thought holds that men would be good if only political institutions would not corrupt them. Another believes that they would be good if the prior evil of a faulty economic organization could be eliminated. So we've got political issues, economic issues. Or another school thinks of this evil as no more than ignorance and therefore waits for a more perfect educational process to redeem man from his partial and particular loyalty. So Niebuhr says, uh, some people think it's politics that are messing people up. We just got to figure out the politics. Some people say it's economics. We just got to figure out economics and get people money that they need. Some people say it's education. We just need to teach people better and eliminate some of this, the religious kind of belief and mythology. It says this, but no school asks how it is that an essentially good man, which is the argument, that an essentially good man could have produced corrupting and tyrannical political organizations or exploiting economic organizations or fanatical and superstitious religious organizations. Right? Like there's a fundamental illogic to we're good people. The only problem is all of the things that these good people made. Right? We're good people and we're only affected by the political system that these good people made or the economic system that these good people built or the the religious or educational system that we teach. That's what's corrupting the good people is what the good people have done. Doesn't make sense. Right? More to the point, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, another fantastic name, wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago, which I could say all day, says this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That Solzhenitsyn argues, listen, the problem isn't economics, the problem isn't politics, the problem isn't education. I mean, those are problems, but they're problems created by the problems in our heart. Broken people break systems. Broken people create broken systems that then further corrupt our broken people, right? That makes way more sense, way, like tracks way more logically and follows way more with our experience of the world. I would argue that this idea of total depravity flowing out of uh, the Christian understanding of original sin that is in us from birth, right? Um, it is, is the best way to understand the world that's going on around us and is the best incentive for us to dig into our own hearts to find the solution, right? The the doctrine of total depravity in a a kind of counterintuitive way humanizes everyone because it's easy if we go, well, it's this political system, then what happens is those who adhere to the political system and prop up the political system are the problem and they quickly get dehumanized. Or if we go, no, it's this unfair economic system, it's capitalism or it's Marxism or it's whatever, and that's really the core problem, then anyone who is a capitalist or a Marxist becomes the de facto problem and they quickly get dehumanized. Or if it's overly rationalistic or if it's overly religious or whatever, they get dehumanized. Kind of counterintuitively, those who go, no, the problem is people and it's all people and we're fundamentally broken all the way to the bottom has a leveling effect, a truly humanizing effect that none of those other perspectives have. 
And so kind of counterintuitively, it actually does a better job of leveling the playing field and it incentivizes us to do the hard work of taking ownership of our sin and the way in which we've contributed to the brokenness in the world. Now, one last quick thing on this, and I think this is really relevant for those of us who are Christians. This is how Christians think of themselves. I'm not saying that's how you necessarily always think of yourself, but, but theologically speaking, Christians have always understood ourselves to be image bearers of God who are deeply flawed and broken by sin. There we have inherent dignity and value and worth that never, ever changes. No matter what we do, that, that inherent dignity never changes because it was something we were given, not something we earned. We earned all this. We were given this, right? So what I don't understand sometimes is what I, what I have seen in, in a million different contexts, but I'm seeing a lot right now, which is an, a, an unwillingness to admit our own sin, to admit our own flaws, to admit even the possibility that we could sin, right? And I, I'm seeing this a lot around race right now, where people are, are very unwilling to even engage the idea that they might have racism in them at any level. And, and I look at this and go, of course I'm racist. Of course that's in me. I'm not special. I'm not in some way immune to that sin in a way that someone who is, I think, more obviously racist, whatever that means, but more obviously racist is, is not immune to it. And they, they're going to fall into this, but I could never. This tells me I, not only that I could, but I probably am. And honestly, it's probably the least of it. This paints a pretty dark picture that as Christians, we ought to own so that we are not in a position of defensiveness, but a posture of humility to go, yeah, I, I'm, sh I'm sure that's possible. Maybe I, maybe I don't see it. I, maybe I don't see this particular sin or that particular sin in me, but, but I'm certainly open to the fact that I'm blind to that sin. Of course, like that happens all the time. I have sins, I have stuff revealed to me all the time that I go, gosh, I've been doing that for a long time. I didn't know that was sin. That happens all the time. So to, to, to defend ourselves against even the possibility that we could be susceptible in these ways seems foolish and seems like it undermines the very idea of who we are and how we're broken by sin. And, and this is kind of the, Paul, the point Paul makes in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. What have the Jews been doing up to this point? Defending themselves. This is, this is the whole Q&A. It's the Jews defending themselves over and over and over. Paul goes, listen, you've been unfaithful to the covenant. You've not treated circumcision as God intended it. You've not followed the law. And they go, but, 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 but. They're defending. They're, they're trying to protect their image, protect their privilege, protect their advantages, protect whatever. And so they're defending themselves. And Paul goes, listen, this is true. So the whole point is, if this is true about you, you can just shut up. You don't need to talk. You don't need to defend yourself. Why would you? Jesus had to die for you. Right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's wrapped up into this Christian thing, right? That, that we were so bad that the God of the universe sent his son to die for us and because of us. 
So why are we defending ourselves? Why are we defending ourselves? Why do we have to pretend like we, we, we're not failing in certain ways or that we're better than what someone might think of us? Paul goes, listen, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's us. We're, this is God's law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Second, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, let's listen. The, the law doesn't save. It was never meant to save. The law was to tell you something about who God is and to show you how far away from God you are so that you'd see your need for him. That's always been the point of the law, to demonstrate for you who you're not and who you need. So if we can, we can look the truth of the gospel full in the face, that what we would see in that reflection is, I don't need to hide and I don't need to fight and I don't need to strive because this is what the gospel says about me. And the moment I raise my hand and go, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm with Jesus. That means I'm saying Jesus had to die for me. That's where I was at. Things got so bad in my life that the son of God had to die on my behalf and it was painful and it was bloody and it was awful, but that's what it took to save me. That's how far away from God I was. So I don't have to hide. I don't have to fight for my rights or fight for my identity or fight for my privilege. And you know what? I don't have to strive anymore because I, I, I was God's the moment I gave myself to him. And so I don't have to strive to earn something. I don't have to strive to be somebody. God's already made me somebody. I am his son because of what God's son did for me. I am his son the moment I gave myself to him. And now I'll spend the rest of my life learning and growing and experiencing his grace and having him draw himself, uh, draw me to himself. But I don't have to strive for the love he has already given me. And I don't have to fight for an identity that he's already given me. And you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like rest. It sounds like peace. It sounds like the opportunity to wake up every morning and not have to defend myself not have to be, be fighting with everybody who might accuse me of something. The cross has accused me of everything. And I have borne that accusation. I have owned that accusation. And I have reached out for the grace of God to save me from the truth of that accusation. And I have been saved. So I don't have to strive. There's nothing left to earn. There's nothing to hide from. My declaration of faith was a full confession of my sinfulness and my need. And Paul is offering the Jews a chance to rest. He's offering them a chance to stop fighting and stop striving, stop, stop trying to be somebody. He's going, listen, from the beginning, this whole thing has been about grace. God chose Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was great? No. The first thing Abraham did was pimp out his wife. To, to some other king that he was afraid of. This is literally the first thing that Abraham does in Genesis 12 after having entered into covenant with God. Like, this is not a good dude. It's grace. It's grace. And this is the, that story, I am confident, is there right after the covenant was signed so that we would go, listen, this is not about Abraham, that God looked down and was like, well, there's a good dude. I need him. No, this is a bad dude that God was gracious towards, just like me. So I got nothing to hide. I got nothing to fight for. I got nothing to strive for. I'm God's. And it's because of him. Let's pray.
Jesus. It is uh, so hard to admit what I am not and to admit what I am. I don't want it to be true. I want to, uh, I want to be faithful. I want to be good. I want to win. I want to be successful. I want to be all these things. I want to be righteous. But the truth of it is that none of it is true about me. And, and my only hope is to admit that it's not true and to lean all of my life into your hands, your gracious and faithful hands. Believing that none of my unfaithfulness could ever nullify your faithfulness. But in fact, my unfaithfulness triggers your faithfulness. That your grace is extended, your love is extended, your mercy is extended to me to draw me back to you. And I am so unendingly grateful for that. Lord, I pray that you would convince our hearts every morning that there's nothing to hide and there's nothing to strive for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.